Good morning. As we gather together, our worship experience is such that's taking us now to the uh, Psalm 92. I'd love for you to turn there with me this morning. As we noted last week and the last couple weeks, we're entering into Book 4 of the Psalms. And just as Book 1, Book 2, and Book 3 were introduced, so likewise with Book 4, we've entered through what I will call dual doors, double doors. And in this entrance, we allowed for Psalms 90 and 91 to be able to serve as the point in which we were able to begin to understand the significance of what these psalms would be all about. Once we've made our way through Psalm 90 and 91, beginning today and in subsequent weeks, there's a series of what I will call nine the Lord is King Psalms. It's a collection. 92 through 100 pulls together this collection of songs. What you and I have to bear in mind is that the readership, the Jewish people, were in exile. And in exile, they must be grasping and grappling with this whole idea, if God is king over all, then why is the king, say, of Babylon or whomever, why do they seem to be in charge? Why are we in exile? And why can't we be where we want to be, worshiping our sovereign God in Jerusalem? I'm not where I want to be. You ever been there? I feel displaced. I feel detached. I feel disconnected. That's what these people were experiencing at this point. So Psalms 92 through 100 address this idea and emphasize the fact that, that the Lord is king. Now, notice with me, once again, the inscription. We call this a superscription because it's at the top of Psalm 92. And there are three significant pointers that draw our attention to what this psalm is all about. It's a psalm, it's a song, and it's for the Sabbath. The word psalm in the Hebrew is mitzmah. It means literally that this is a praise song, a praise song. There are 57 mitzmahs throughout the psalms. And so what we are being introduced now is to the idea that the Lord God is king and he is worthy of our praise. No matter what circumstances we might find ourselves in, no matter how detached we feel, dislocated our experience, God is still God. The next word here, song, shia from the Hebrew, carries with the idea that this is for community singing. And so, uh, when we gather together for worship and various services on Sunday mornings, even for those that right now are watching online, this is for people who gather together and to offer this praise song in a community context. What we also want to note here in the superscription is that this is for the Sabbath. Now, that means then that this was to be done at least on a weekly basis, a regular basis. So it will continuously 
press into the community context the idea that the Lord God is king, he is worthy to be praised, and this praise ought to be offered weekly on behalf of his people. All of that comes out of your superscription. Now, with that being said, what we see now is Psalm 92 begins the series of the Lord is King in the Hebrew, Yahweh Melech. And what I want to read is verse 1. I'll take it down through verse 9. And we're going to be introduced to the heading, the title for today's teaching that we're pondering here. It's your declaration. You'll see it in verse 2. We'll find it again in verse 15, bookending this psalm. You are making a declaration now in your worship, in your praise song to our Lord. Let's check it out. I'll read one down through verse 9. And here you and I are told, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So we're going to be exploring these verses, 15 verses, all in all this morning. And as we do, we're going to pause now. We're going to seek our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, we're being introduced to a praise song. And it could very well be that somebody now watching online is struggling with, where do I find the depth of feeling to offer praise? Maybe right now, one of these services where physically we have been present, corporately involved in worship, yet we're going to have to dig real deep because the past days have not gone easy. One more challenge to overcome. Yet you are worthy of praise. Lord, you know the needs. But the ultimate need, the need for salvation, was secured by your Son. Dying on the cross to save us from our sins. The penalty paid. We praise you for that. So now, Father, what we want to do is to go deep, offer you authentic worship, 
as we now ponder what it is that we have expressed from our hearts to you in song, what we have offered you in terms of the tithes and offerings that you own. Now apply the truth of your word that you have inspired. These moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the lyrics that caught my attention. I've sung them before, corporately as well as privately. But they tie directly into Psalms 92 through 100, The Lord is King. You know the lyrics. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light. Darkness tries to hide and trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. We see the majesty here, the splendor of a king clothed in majesty, tied with the greatness in his sovereignty. It was September of 1715. It was a funeral for a king. Louis XIV, it was held in Paris, and Louis XIV was the man who had once said, quote, I am the state. In other words, he's the government. He's in charge. He had been dubbed, quote, the Sun King. Unquote, because of the lavishness of his court. At his funeral, a pastor was asked to give the eulogy. Thousands of people had come spilling out of the cathedral into the square. And the pastor went up into the pulpit and offered a eulogy that consisted of just four words. And then he left the pulpit and continued the service. But the four words that he had shared were this quote, Only God is great. Unquote. So what we're about to do now is to allow for this praise song to lift our spirit to a new level that no matter what experiences you are in the midst of facing, the Lord is king. And we need to embrace the fact only God is great. There are three perspectives that I want to draw out this, from this passage of Scripture that will help us to better apply this praise song to where we're at in our everyday experiences. 
And the first comes out of one through four, that as you and I declare the Lord's greatness in our worship, whether it be individual or corporate, I want you to note, first of all, the works our Lord has produced. Think about all that God has accomplished. As you begin with the words, it is good, and you say, but Gary, right now life is not good. Now, if that's where you're at, Understand, we're not to confuse God with the circumstances of life. The circumstances of life might appear bad, but the sovereignty of our God is eternally good. Note the distinction. Lift your spirit higher than where it was when you entered. It is good. Now, what I want you to see next is that three times... There is a little word, T-O, that appears to offer you a sense of intentionality in the way in which you worship our God. It is good, first of all, to give thanks to the Lord. As we give thanks to the Lord, what you and I have to do then is to be able to say, even though my difficulties, my challenges, my experiences right now are rather, are rather um, uncomfortable, to say the least, notice what we have here. We are to give thanks to the Lord. In his book, Living Life on Purpose, Greg Anderson shares this story of a particular man's journey when he had experienced incredible amounts of loss in a very short period of time. He was down. He was discouraged. And it seemed as though he was losing faith and lacking joy. Anderson tells us that one rainy morning, this man went into a, a small neighborhood restaurant for breakfast. Some of us do that. Although several people were at the diner, no one was speaking to anyone else. Well, our miserable friend was hunched over the counter, stirring his coffee with a spoon, in one of the small booths along the window, there was this young mother with a little girl, and they had just been served their food when the little girl broke the silence in the diner by almost shouting, Mama, why don't we say our prayers here? Now, the waitress who had just served their breakfast turned around and said, Sure, honey, we pray here. Will you say the prayer for us? And then she turned, looked at the rest of the people in the restaurant, and the waitress said, bow your heads. <laughs> Surprisingly, well, one by one, the heads went down, and then the little girl bowed her head, folded her hands, and prayed out loud. God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. Amen.
Evidently, that prayer changed the entire atmosphere. People began to talk to one another. The waitress put her hands on her hips one more time, looked at everybody, wagged her hand, and then said, we are going to do this every morning. But then uh, our lonely friend, sitting by himself, says, all of a sudden, my whole frame of mind started to improve. It's as if God placed that little girl there just for me. The little girl's example. I started to thank God for all that I did have and stopped majoring on all that I had lost. And I began to pursue joy, even in the challenges of my life. How about you? It begins, it is good, with the first heel to give thanks to the Lord, Yahweh, it's his Hebrew name, carries with the idea the covenantal, relational, sovereign one of this universe who desires a relationship with you, but it's based by putting our faith and trust in Christ, you know. But then you are introduced to still a second form of intentionality. Another teal, you spot it there, we're still in verse 1, to sing praises to your name, comma, O Most High. Now, we're very interested, aren't we, in making a name for ourselves. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. They constructed something, and we are told by, by the author at, that at that point they were seeking to establish a name for self, as are people all around us. What the psalmist is doing is that he is lifting us to a name above all names, to sing praises to not our name, but to your name, and then to counter what I will call the babble instinct in humanity, where they were attempting to construct something of height. He adds, O most high. Now what we've got to ask ourselves at this point then, as we are maneuvering through the challenges of life, Whose name is supreme? Am I concerned with the sovereignty of God's name being imprinted upon my attitude and upon my heart in the midst of what it is that I am facing because that name matters? But not once and not twice, but now for a third time, the little T.O. captures our attention and because it will be serving as a means of bookending this psalm, when it adds in verse 2, to declare your steadfast love. I love that phrase because it comes from a singular Hebrew word, hesed, which we know is extraordinarily difficult to translate. 
but let's give it a shot. It carries with the idea of loyal love, faithful love, the steadfast love. But now what he wants you to do is to, and wants me to do, of course, is to take a good hard look at how we begin our day and how we end our day. No matter what we're facing in life, if Christ reigns, and he does, then we are to declare your steadfast love when? In the morning. And your faithfulness when? By night. It is the wise person who knows how to bookend life day in and day out. This is relevant. This is practical guidance. It is the way that we are to manage time effectively to bring glory to God's name even in the most difficult times of life. And so he says here, with regard to this love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, you end by asking yourself, and how has God demonstrated his faithfulness to me, his faithfulness to me, in the midst of the unpredictabilities that I endure day in, day out. He was entitled Letters in the Sand. It's a compilation of letters written by military personnel to family, loved ones, friends, and states. One was written by a Marine corporal. His name was Preston Coffer. He told a friend, quote, we're talking about Marines. We all joined the service knowing full well what might be expected of us. He chronicled the difficult moments he was experiencing in life at that time. But then he signed off with the Marine motto, Semper Fi, Latin for always faithful. You end your day by worshiping your God. And Lord, you have been faithful. Even when I'm not faithful, you remain faithful. I've placed my faith in the faithful one. Now, we said that this psalm is a praise song. It's a song meant for corporate worship consistent weekly worship. And in the corporate setting, we're up to verse 3, where the psalmist now chronicles what music instruments were most likely available to them, say, in the synagogue. To the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre, pondering perhaps the first great king, David, and the way in which he worshipped the Lord, even in the oppressive context of having to do so with King Saul present. But now in verse 4, what you and I are informed of is that we are given a reason for all of this. For you, O Lord, he's back to the covenantal relational Yahweh. For you, O Lord, mark this, have made me glad 
no matter what you're experiencing in life. It's not that the circumstances have made you glad. But you see, we're dealing with the almost high. And so you've got something coming from above. Not from around us, but from above us. You have made me glad. How? By your work. And then he moves from the singular to the plural. At the works of your hands. And this is for, this is for worship, you know. I sing for joy. Now, it was his objective to get Congress to engage in this kind of thinking. And so in 1921, a humble, rather dark-skinned individual with a high-pitched voice entered the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. for the first time, not the last. This former slave was one of the world's greatest agricultural scientists and inventors. I have his biography at home. His name George Washington Carver. Carver had been invited to Washington to testify before the House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee about his scientific work. He explained to the leaders that peanuts and sweet potatoes were, quote, two of the greatest products the sovereign God has ever given to us, unquote. And then he demonstrated a number of products which he had developed from the peanut. Wrapping up his testimony to the committee, Kava then said, if you go to the first chapter of Genesis, we can interpret it very clearly what God intended when he said, behold, I have given you every herb that bears seed upon the face of the earth, Every tree bearing seed, to you it shall be meat. And this is what he means about it. There is everything there to strengthen and nourish and keep the body alive and healthy. And then in a period of questioning that followed, the committee chairman asked Dr. Carver, where did you learn these things? And George Washington Carver answered from an old book. What book, asked the chairman. The Bible, Kava replied. The chairman asked, does the Bible tell about peanuts? No, sir, Dr. Carver then said. But it tells about the sovereign God who made the peanut. I asked him to simply show me what to do with the peanut. And he did. And at that point, he offered fresh insight into what was happening in secular society where Darwinism was beginning to get a grip on the educational structures in our midst. What he did was to point out the sovereign one who is Lord over all. And so he would emphasize very clearly this was God's work and then his own private testimonies, which share about the greatest work of all, when Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. 
Therefore, now what we do is we take the three little TOs, weave them into our corporate worship experience. And even when life doesn't feel good, the sovereign God is good. And we ponder the work that he has done. And it leads you then to this second of the three perspectives the psalm offers. Because when you and I declare the Lord's greatness in our worship, we move from the works our Lord has produced to then pondering the opposition our Lord has faced. And it's there for you. Right there in verses 5 through 9. But first of all, what he's got to do is to once again make his declaration. How great are your works, O Lord! Exclamation point. Don't you love what comes next? Your thoughts are very deep. Ever try to figure out God? God's ways, God's purposes, God's intent. Isaiah in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 would pen, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God speaking, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They would have to ponder this on that Sabbath day, each and every Sabbath day, which would be the springboard for the Jewish person into the new week, you see. When thinking about how great are your works, because you see on the Sabbath day you cease from work. And now they're being called to the initial Sabbath where God on that last day rested from his labors. So now they're pondering the significance of sequence of works that God has done. Your thoughts are very deep, which ought to be the case when we're worshiping and we open in God's word. We're entering into some pretty deep thinking when we open God's word. But now what he does, he sets a contrast, doesn't he? And it's going to be the contrast between what I will call lowercase thinking and uppercase thinking. Lowercase thinking, the stupid man cannot know. To put it a different way, the fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass... And all evildoers flourish. They're doomed. The evildoers are doomed to destruction forever. They might have thought they were uppercase. In reality, they are lowercase. The Emperor Julian of Rome had decreed that Christianity was to be outlawed throughout the Roman Empire, sought to destroy it and Christians. Passing by an elderly Christian one day on the streets, sarcastically, he looked at the man and said, where is your Christ now? The elderly man replied, making a coffin for the Roman emperor. 
Where do you get such courage? When you've got a sense of who truly owns uppercase, here it comes. Look very carefully at what comes next. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Did you notice where it said in verse 7, they are doomed to destruction forever, but you, now contrasting, going uppercase, are on high forever. And then he gives the reason. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, and all evildoers shall be scattered, which would have meant so much to these Jewish people in their synagogues who are pondering, what's God doing in our time of exile? We're scattered. But one of our basic principles here in our congregation is we are gathered on Sunday to be scattered through the rest of the week, taking the seed of truth with us and planting it wherever the soil absorbs it. Cornelius Martins understood that. He was a pastor in the old Soviet Union, taken to the office of the local communist party to be interrogated. The party boss ordered two men to strip him of his clothes, but Martins told them not to trouble. He would undress for himself, adding, I don't fear to die, for I'm going to go home to the Lord. If he has decided my hour has not yet come, you can't do me any harm here. Well, this, evidently, according to the biographer, drove the Communist Party boss mad. I'll prove to you that your God will not deliver you out of your hands, he said, lifted his revolver to drop Martins in his tracks, but his finger froze on the trigger. Three times he tried to fire. Three times it failed. His face grew red. His body began to shake. He looked ready for a coronary episode, the biographer tells us. At last he lowered the gun and asked the quote-unquote lesser official what Martins was condemned for, and the official answered, he's a Christian. Can't you see God is fighting for him? And the communist boss then ordered Martins to get out, go away, and stay away. Well, he's being scattered he was gathered to be scattered. On the other hand, the evildoers will be eternally scattered. And now you're up to the third of the three perspectives from this praise song that is simply bringing attention to the fact that God is great. God is good. As that little girl in the diner would remind us. Because now thirdly, I want you to notice with me the blessings our Lord has provided. Beginning here with verse, with verse 10 and onward. But you have exalted my horn. The horn was a symbol of strength in that time period. Like that of the wild ox, you poured over me fresh oil. See how refreshed he's beginning to find himself in the experience of authentic worship, as should you and as should I. It's not about us. This is highly applicable, highly relevant stuff. 
My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. So would an elderly man, when having to face the emperor of Rome, Julian, the elderly man would be able to respond. Why? Check out verse 12. It's good. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And you see, in the Middle East, the cedar tree in Lebanon was considered to be the majestic tree. It's the tree that everybody desired to be near. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God, speaking collectively. So now can't you sense all these exiled folks? They've been detached, removed. They're feeling so disconnected. (sighs) Planted in the house of the Lord. They long to be in the house of the Lord. But they're not in Jerusalem. They're not where they want to be. But they're to be in the Lord, their dwelling place. They flourish in the courts of our God. And then I love what comes next for those that are now reaching, I'll just simply call a certain age of life. They, they still bear fruit in old age. Love the story of Winston Churchill on his 75th birthday. A photographer said to him, Sir, I hope that I will shoot your picture on your 100th birthday. Churchill, who was always quick, he answered, I don't see why not, young man. You look reasonably fit and healthy. (laughs) So good. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. But now you've done it. You've taken the declaration found at the beginning of the psalm. You connect it now with the declaration that's being offered at the end of this psalm. Once again, you've bookended it. How do you end? To declare that the Lord is upright. And furthermore, Do you sense the stability here? Do you feel the security here in what he says next? In insecure times, he is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Sometime in your next visit to New England, go to Plymouth Rock. And there you will read, this spot mocks the final resting place of the pilgrims of the Mayflower. In weariness and hunger and cold, fighting the wilderness and burying their dead in common graves, they here laid the foundations of a state in which all men for countless ages should be able to worship God. All you who pass by and see this this stone, remember, 
and dedicate yourselves anew to the resolution that you will not rest until this lofty ideal shall have been realized throughout the earth. This is a stone of remembrance. And when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the solid rock upon which you stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What you're able to do is then to offer this dual declaration, pull it all together, and this is what a life of authentic worship is all about. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity for individual worship when we're scattered. We're thankful for the opportunity for corporate worship when we're gathered. It's a psalm, a praise song, a song that's meant for corporate gatherings. It's meant for the weekly gatherings of your people. So for those that feel detached, disengaged, removed, wondering where's the relevance in all this, how does this apply? Give them now a heart of worship. Lift them from lowercase to uppercase. And in the process, Father, may they be able to say, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, even when life is not necessarily all that good. And we will give you and you alone all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.